You're listening to Plenary Session. On this week's bonus episode of Plenary Session, you're going to hear a lecture that I gave very recently to Salem City Club. This was a lecture about medical reversal, and the audience was broad and diverse. They included many people who were part of the general public and who were interested in City Club lectures. And for that reason, I retooled my comments to a very broad audience, and I hope that you find this interesting. And this lecture is going to be similar to some of the lectures you've heard before on this podcast, um, but aimed at an entirely different audience. Ah, and one thing came up since I've given this lecture. An astute listener and blogger pointed out that at one point in this lecture, I refer to two Model T cars. In fact, I make a mistake. Henry Ford made a Model T, but Elon Musk made the Model S. So I was off by a letter. And I've been off by that letter in so many different lectures, and no one has ever pointed out to me. So I thank this person for pointing that out to me, and I will correct that going forward. I meant to say the Model S. So that's a different model. All right. So with that, stay tuned for the lecture from Salem City Club on medical reversal to a very general audience. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to talk to you all today about um, this topic of why in healthcare recommendations sometimes go one direction And then a few years later, it seems like you read the exact opposite in the newspaper. A medicine you may have been taking for many years, one day the doctor says, you know what, you don't need to take that, and you probably should never have taken that all along. Why do we have this kind of phenomenon where it doesn't seem like they can't make up their mind, it seems like they're just flip-flopping? So I call that medical reversal. And I'm going to argue in this talk that maybe as much as 40% of what doctors do might be mistaken, and how we might be better about teasing out what's good and enduring about medicine from maybe the false starts. In terms of disclosure, I'm the author of this book called Ending Medical Reversal. It's published by the Johns Hopkins University Press, and that's why I'm fabulously rich. Uh, (laughs) We have another, I have another book coming out this fall. It'll be called Malignant, and it'll be about cancer drugs and drug policy. Um, my work is funded by this nonprofit foundation, the Lauren John Arnold Foundation, based out of Houston, Texas. And recently, we've been putting out this podcast called Plenary Session. It's on the iTunes store. We talk about some of the themes that I'll talk with you today about. We have many positive reviews, but we also have one one-star review, so I want to know who's responsible <laughs> that, for that. Um, but I think the real disclosure of this talk is that some of what I say about healthcare will be controversial. Um, and it's not my purpose to pick on specific medical practices, although I will do so, uh, but it's not my purpose. My purpose is really to talk about a broader trend of progress and innovation and where it happens and where we might be getting some things wrong. This is a picture of two automobiles, and they are both Model T cars. 
The one on the left is a Model T made by Henry Ford, and the one on the right is a Model T made by Elon Musk, the Tesla Model T. Um, I think many of us in this room, and even many like technical expert physicians, believe that healthcare moves from the left to the right. We started with something that was progress, and we've incrementally made it better, just like in the last 100 years with automobiles. We've made it steady, incremental progress. And I think many people think of healthcare the same way you think of your phone. Um, the phone you carry in your pocket is now faster and more powerful than a computer from 1980. Your television, it used to be such a bulky, heavy object, and now it's, you know, as flat as can be, and you can be put it on the wall. We extrapolate our experience with technology to healthcare, and we think that just as technology is incremental advancement, so too must be healthcare. And I guess I would say, this is true to some degree. I mean, we have definitely had many things in healthcare that have been slow, steady, incremental advancement, just like the cars. But the difference between healthcare and your television or your car is sometimes you cannot, to the naked eye, tell if it's better than what came before. It requires more controlled studies to figure out, is it truly innovation or not? And so I, I, I want to say this narrative is true, but maybe it's not the only narrative in medicine. So I have here two examples of things in medicine that fit this narrative. And I'll just mention one, peptic ulcer disease. So if you had an ulcer in 1970, it is very likely that the doctor may have recommended a surgery to remove a portion of the stomach. If you had that same ulcer in 1990, you would be taking a pill once a day, and today it's another, it's a different pill that's a little bit more potent. We turned a surgical condition into a medically managed condition, the peptic ulcer. Um, and we also now have antibiotics, and we've learned that the, there's some role of the H. pylori bacteria in this ulcer. So the story of how we manage ulcers is just like this car, steady incremental progress. The story of how we manage people who are having a heart attack is the same thing. We have a number of medications that have proven survival benefits. We have procedures that dramatically improve outcomes for patients. That's a, it's not a 100% success story, but it's certainly a story that's moving in the right direction, how we treat a heart attack. So some things in medicine are just like, just like the automobile, incremental progress. But at many other times, something we had been doing was shown to be no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care. What do I mean? There's this old saying that says, history is written by the victors. And what that means is that the people who win are the ones who tell us what happened before. And there is a tendency in medicine that the medical books are written as if it has only been incremental progress. And they omit all the blind alleys, the false leads that we may have pursued for years because they're no longer relevant in the modern age, so why talk about it? Or maybe the people who are writing it have forgotten that it even happened. What I wish to argue is there's another narrative that we don't talk about too much, which is that things that were labeled as progress were no such thing. And many of them were actually no better than not doing it at all. One example is the routine use of hormone therapy postmenopausally. Now, in the early 1990s, as a matter of routine, we prescribed hormone therapy to many, many, many postmenopausal women. Now, this does not mean that no one should get it today. There's still a small group of people who may have symptoms who maybe it's worth it to try for a short period of time, but nothing like what we were doing in 1990, which was something that was shown in a randomized trial in the early 2000s to increase the rate of strokes and other bad events, and we halted that practice. 
This other narrative I call medical reversal, and I think it's a lot more like this automobile. This is the Volkswagen Diesel. The Volkswagen Diesel is a car you may have purchased because you cared about the environment. You wanted to lower greenhouse gases, and in retrospect, it put out 42 times as much greenhouse gas. Just as in automobiles, they have one blind alley. This was a mistake. But I wish to suggest that in biomedicine, we have many, many, many Volkswagen diesels. We just don't see it, and we just don't speak too often about it. Okay, in the, in the brief time we have together, and I hope to save a lot of time for questions, so I'll be brief, um, I will try to give you some examples of what do I mean by reversal when doctors flip-flop or go back and forth. I want to tell you how often it happens. Um, is, it, is it like an earthquake in California, rare but memorable, or is it like a snowstorm in a Chicago winter, something that's there all the time? Uh, I want to talk about how harmful it may be, where it comes from, what we can do about it, and what are some of the things I hear when I talk about this topic. So, some examples. I will give you just um, two examples, and this one may, um, may connect with some people, but um, there are many people who have painful conditions of the lower back, one of which is spinal stenosis, which is a narrowing of the spinal canal. And these patients often get treated with steroid injections to the back, which can make people feel a whole lot better. Now, if you take a group of people and half of them get the steroid injection, the other half don't, the people who get the injection do feel better. Very recently, they did a study where they took the group of people and, they, and half of them got the steroid injection and the other half got a salt water injection. Now, salt water is not a steroid. It's not supposed to do anything. It's just inert salt water. And what they found was both groups of people got better and they got better at the exact same rate. What does that tell us? I think it suggests to us that it's not that this injection doesn't help. It does help. Both groups get better. It's that it, the only reason it helps is the power of suggestion. It is a placebo effect. You believe you should feel better, so you feel better. The steroid doesn't help more than that belief. Why is this interesting? I guess it suggests a few things to me. One, um, do you really need the steroid? That's the simplest thing. The steroid is costly, and in 2011, there was an outbreak of fungal meningitis because some of the steroids got contaminated. Um, that's a risk that people assumed because they thought this was something that works better than a placebo procedure, um, and that may not be the case. Okay, so this is one example. I think it's always tricky when you talk about a procedural intervention for an outcome like pain, because even though pain is very important, at the end of the day, pain is something that is a product of both what our body is experiencing and our emotional state and what we think about how we should feel. It's a, it's, it's a type of response that is susceptible to a placebo effect, that you can feel better because you want to feel better, and who doesn't? Just as stenting a heart for a heart attack can be a life-saving intervention, all medical procedures have some tendency towards indication drift. What does that mean? That means we start doing it in somebody who's at very high risk of something bad happening, but over time, doctors drift towards using the same technique in somebody who's at very low risk of something bad happening. So it can drift outward. And stenting in the throes of a heart attack is life-saving, but what about stenting for somebody who just has angina, or that reproducible chest pain that comes when, say, you shovel, when you stop shoveling the sidewalk, it goes away, you walk a certain distance, it's a reproducible chest tightness that comes and goes. Chronic, stable angina. Many people suffer from this condition. 
And for many years, people underwent stents being placed for this condition. In fact, they still do. The logic initially was, many, and many patients believed, that that stent would lower the rate of a heart attack or make them live longer. In 2007, we learned that both of those two things were not true. It didn't make you live longer and it didn't lower the rate of a heart attack, but we believed it made you feel better. Very recently, Daryl Francis and colleagues from Imperial College London um, performed a study where they randomized patients to either have the procedure or to have a simulated procedure, just like that steroid injection. They wore headphones, they didn't know if they got it or not, and in fact, some people didn't get it. And they measured how much time these patients can exercise on a treadmill as a marker of their exercise tolerance. And you'd expect that the group that got the heart stented open will be exercising more. Uh, in fact, that was not the case. There was no significant difference between the two groups in how much time they could exercise. But yet both groups improved from the baseline. This suggests that stenting is an expensive, invasive, potentially harmful procedure that has no benefit beyond the placebo effect um, for at least chronic stable angina, at least in this study. The study gets a lot of criticism because it's just one study, of course. But the flip side is no one has ever shown that the stenting has a benefit tested against the simulated procedure ever in history. This is, in fact, the only time it's ever been tested this way. We'll come back to, you know, why do doctors do something for so long before they do some kind of very elegant study like this? Why does this happen 20, 30 years into a practice rather than at the outset? Okay, so how often does this happen? Uh, a few years ago, we tried to estimate this and led to that work that I showed you in the book, and we were fortunate to be covered in the New York Times about how often does medical reversal happen. Here's the way we tried to estimate it. We took every article that appeared in a major medical journal over one decade, and that was 2,044 articles. And every one of these articles was read by two people. And that's why God invented medical students to do <laughs> this kind of important work. The first thing we found was that 1,300 of these 2,000 articles were something that doctors were doing, a pill you may take, a procedure you may have undergone, a surgery, something doctors were doing. 1,000 of the 1,300, or 75%, um, were something new, a new blood thinner versus warfarin, the old blood thinner, a new cancer drug versus the old drug, something new and you've never seen before. And if you were in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the best journal, and you tested something novel, 77% of the time, the new thing was better. Why is 77% of the time the new practice better in this venerable journal? I wish it were because we were that good at science that we're 77% of the time we're, right, we're better, but that's not true. The reason it's this high in this journal is this journal only likes to publish positive findings. They're not only, but they preferentially like to publish positive things because positive things are the things you'll read about in the newspaper, and if somebody invents a new procedure, no one's gonna care unless it's a positive procedure. No one's gonna be that interested. So this is what people call publication bias or selective reporting bias. You may hear that in the press. There's a publication bias, meaning that the thing that you're reading that's published is not a random picked experiment, but a favorable experiment. That's why somebody wanted to print it. We also found about a quarter of practices were something doctors were already doing. These were a pill or a procedure that we had already implemented and spread throughout the country, often throughout the country, perhaps in a different part of the world. If you tested something doctors were already doing, 
what do you think the split is? It's not 75, 25, it is. About 40% found that it worked and 40% found that it didn't and the rest were kind of inconclusive, hard to tell. So here it's about an even split, let's say 50-50. If you test something doctors were doing, it was 50-50. If you test something new, it's 77% and like 10%. Why is that? Here I think there's no, there's not no, but there's less publication bias. Because when you study something that we're all doing, it has a broad appeal. It will be in the New York Times either way. Yes, you were right to do that. Or no, you were wrong to do that. Either way, it's sort of publishable. It's sensational. It's interesting. If you test something new, a pill that no one's ever heard of, it's only interesting if it's something that's going to change practice. Otherwise, you know, it lacks interest. So here we find that it's about 50-50. That's why I, I, I'm concerned that of all the things we do in medicine, there's a fraction that we really know are of indisputable benefit and no one will argue with. But there's a lot of what we do that we learned because someone senior to us taught us to do that way. Um, we, it's an apprenticeship model at the end of the day, just like any other trade that is an apprentice trade. And a lot of what you've learned because somebody senior to you did it, um, in your heart you believe it works, of course, because you respect the person who taught you. Um, but there may not always be the proof that it does work. And our research suggests that if you took all those things and you tested it rigorously, don't be surprised if 40% of that senior person's wisdom uh, turned out not to be so wise. Uh, so I guess it, it is really a call for humility, I think. Um, in our paper, we detail all the reversals, and they're also in the supplement of our book. I always recommend that this is very fun reading. <laughs> um, it is fun, because this is the stuff that you don't read in a history book. Because these are practices we don't really often use today. So they're not in the, they're not in the textbook. These are the false starts, the, the, dead, the blind alleys that we explore, the dead ends. Um, and it's interesting to read about it, because you'll see the people who believed in these things they were very bright people, they worked at the best of places, and they often had the best of intentions. And yet they came to believe their own experience, I think, over the ability to look critically at what they were doing and test it. And it took years before somebody came along and tested it. Um, I guess what, one of the things I want to say is that some people say, well, is this, does this happen more for surgeries, or more for pills, or more for devices, or more for, you know, and I guess what I would say is that I don't know where it happens more, but one thing I do know for sure is that every type of thing you can imagine in healthcare, it's happened to. Uh, Over-the-counter medications that people, including myself, and we, we, we may have believed in and we put in our medicine cabinet. Some of those things don't work as we might have expected. A procedure that we've done as a doctor, a, surgeon we, a surgery we've performed, um, a pill we've recommended. In every class of healthcare, there's been something like this. Even quality and performance metrics, like in other words, telling doctors that we're going to report some statistic to you to improve your behavior. Well, it turns out sometimes that reporting that to the doctor doesn't improve the behavior and may lead to some unintended consequences that are far worse. So even those sorts of things, these big systemic solutions, um, have really boomeranged and, and come, back to, come back the other way. So in terms of how often this happens, I guess I would say, um, I'm not wedded to that 40% number. You know, if further research changes that a little bit, I'll be okay with that. But I do think it's not half of 1%. It's not 1%. It's something significant. It is more a snowstorm in a Chicago winter than it is an earthquake in a California. You know, California earthquakes, even though they make the news, they're still infrequent. 
Um, but snowstorms in Chicago, I live there for most of my life. They're not infrequent. Um, so why is this problematic? I believe that there are three major harms from this flip-flopping in medicine. One is that people who undergo a practice when it falls in favor, they are harmed. Uh, at a minimum, they were told something inadequate. They weren't told the full truth about the procedure. They may have been misled, um, but they certainly didn't undergo something that has benefits outweighing harms. The second thing I'd say is people who undergo the practice in the lag time before it falls out of favor. Medical practice is like a battleship. It's a very big boat. And if you want to turn a big boat, you can't turn it very quickly. It turns very, very, very slowly. And that's just the nature of the field. We have an inertia. We like to keep doing what we're doing, even in the face of this negative information. So it takes a long time to course correct. And in the years that it takes us to course correct, I think there's the additional harm to people. They continue to be exposed to something that potentially is of no net benefit. Finally, and to me this is the worst of the harms, there's loss of trust in medicine. Um, I think we live in a very tough time because there, because I, I guess I want to say, I believe that medicine is the most important, science and medicine is the most important thing we do as human beings. It is a, a, a truly honorable pursuit and it can be done well. And we have truly made massive progress in many diseases. Um, the problem is we could do better. Okay, so that's what I'm trying to argue. But there are a lot of people out there who I think are critical of science, perhaps even knowledge or facts. Um, fundamentally, they don't believe in those things. They want to believe something else entirely. Um, they don't want to agree. And when we give them these examples of how we have flip-flopped, I think it does give them fuel for an incorrect um, fire. Uh, it gives them something to hold up to their supporters and say, see, the doctors are wrong about this, so they're wrong about everything. But of course, the doctors are not wrong about everything. They're wrong about a few things. It's important for us to figure out what those few things are and to be open-minded that you know, we may have more of those things and to have a process that we self-correct. Um, but So I do think this can be kind of weaponized and used as a bludgeon against all of science. And that, to me, is the most dangerous thing, I think, in 2018. Um, and also, the biggest reason why we need experts to actually, I think, be more honest about this topic. Where does this problem come from? This is a very busy slide, and I will take you through it. And you know, don't look at the slide, just listen to how I summarize it. I guess I'd say, um, why do we adopt things that don't really help our patients? Doctors, at the end of the day, we're human beings too, and we are subject to all of the things that make human beings believe in things. So one of the reasons we adopt a therapy, for instance, a surgery or a pill, is because we believe the story makes sense. You know, every day you may read about a new drug or a device, somebody will show you a cartoon and say, this is how the device goes in the body, it opens this part of the body, it drugs this receptor, the cell is cooled down, you know, the immune system is revved up. They'll tell you some story. This story is pathophysiology. It's the reasoning we use to figure out how the body works. It's our best working model. We come to believe that the model is everything and that if the story is plausible, the intervention must work. But I think history has taught us that the human body is far more complicated than a cell phone or a, a computer, and our stories are often merely the shadows of what's actually going on. They're incomplete. And if anyone doubts that our stories are incomplete, we can look back at the stories from 1918 that they told about how the body works, 
And we will laugh at those doctors and think they knew nothing about the body. And in a hundred years from now, they will look back at the stories we tell and they will laugh at us. And I think if we forget that humility, that our models are at best approximations, we can become seduced by the model. Of course, this should work, so why doesn't it work? Um, and if it should work, we should just do it and we shouldn't really test it. And that's where you get the reversal because we just say, the story is seductive, let's do it. Sometimes the story is seductive and there's also an anecdote or compelling story. So for instance, um, you know, this procedure, it makes a lot of sense. And there were three people in North Carolina who we did it on and two of them felt great. Okay, but then you may start to ask yourself, well, what would have happened to three people if you gave them a sugar pill? What would have happened to three people if you took them for a walk in the park? What would have happened to three people? You know, all these other scenarios. And you start to ask yourself, is that really good evidence that this actually works? And of course, those kinds of things, three stories, is not very good evidence. And if you doubt that, I think at the age of the internet, you can find three stories that say anything does anything. <laughs> Won't take long, just Google that. You know, pick a, just throw, just oh, pick, a book at, pick a word at random from a book and pick a disease at random from a, a doctor's book and you'll find probably three reports that that can make that better. You know, that's unfortunately the case. Um, sometimes we do do studies that should be good and one type of study in medicine that we do that is a very good study is the randomized control trial. I think it's, it's difficult, I think, well, I, no, I'll put it this way. Um, some people may feel like this sounds strange. Why would a doctor who believes in a therapy take a group of patients and do half of them to get the therapy, the other half get something like the therapy? You know, in your mind that might sound quite strange because if you really believe in it, give everyone the therapy, you know. Uh, why would you deprive half the people? It turns out if you look very broadly at all of these kind of randomized studies over time, about half of the time they actually didn't work. Um, you were not worse off to be in the, in the group that didn't get it. And what does that tell us? You need the study to know what actually works versus what doesn't work. It's the best way to know that it's that intervention that's doing the trick. Now you may say like, what about just studying people in the real world? For instance, um, if you wanted to know, does doing yoga, is doing yoga helpful or something like that? Or drinking a, uh, you know, a fruit smoothie once a day, is that helpful? Just look in the world and say, who drank the fruit smoothie, who didn't, and see how they did. The problem with that, of course, is that who are the people drinking the fruit smoothies and doing the yoga? Is it randomly, pe people at random? It tends to be well-educated a better socioeconomic status with more advantages who may have other reasons why they do better. So maybe it's not the fruit smoothie or not the, and I'm just making up examples, but maybe it's not that, but something about the types of people who have gravitated towards that. And so similarly with the hormone replacement therapy, we learned that probably the types of people that gravitated towards that were slightly healthier than the types of people who didn't. And that didn't hold up when you actually assigned people the therapy in an experiment. So, that's really the virtue of randomized trials. I often hear people say, you know, I don't want to be in a randomized trial and not get the treatment. And I say, I can understand that feeling, and that's how I felt, you know, before I had read, you know, at least 2,000, but no more than that, uh, randomized trials. But having looked at lots of them, I see that the virtue is that we really don't know. And if we did know, we wouldn't do the study. It's really it's because we are uncertain. Uh, so with, by saying all that, I want to say, randomized trials are treated as sacrosanct in medicine. But the problem is we now have a world where a for-profit commercial interest often has a tremendous incentive to get the positive result. 
And that incentive is basically, if this trial is successful, you will have many, many billions of dollars. And if it's unsuccessful, you will have nothing. And if you give someone that kind of incentive and you tell them to design the trial, these are clever people, they'll think about ways that they could probably favor their trial. So for instance, people on the other arm of the study, they're not allowed to do X or Y or Z, or we'll give them a drug that probably is the worst of the drugs. You know, we'll give them a really kind of a straw man comparator drug. Um, all these ways you can kind of game a trial to favor your product. And what I like to say is that we shouldn't be surprised that they would favor, they would do this. I mean, it's not, I don't even think it's, I mean, I don't like it, but I don't think, I think they're incentivized to do that. It's just, you know, it's like asking a lion not to be a lion. I mean, you're gonna give somebody billion dollars if they have a success, they're going to try to favor their, their trial. Um, it's up to us to enforce the regulation that makes them do the right study. Similarly, if I had a painting contest and the painting contest prize was $10 billion and we all in this room submitted a painting for the painting contest and I was also the judge of the painting contest. <laughs> I'll tell you what, who's, who's gonna win that painting contest and, and I'm a terrible painter. Um, when it comes to interventions that make us feel better, feel better, breathe better, um, have less depression, you know, these kinds of subjective how our body feels. The, re the way you need to study that is with these kind of sham controlled or get the patient to believe you did the procedure but you didn't actually do that. Because the power of the placebo effect in this setting is very, very strong. And there are a number of procedures like removal of damaged cartilage from the knee for people with osteoarthritis with a certain type of arthroscope, uh, a number of procedures like this that over the years we've learned were nothing more than an elaborate placebo effect. Um, and the thing that separated it was testing it against an intervention where you allowed someone to believe you did it, but you didn't actually do it. Um, this I think is an important lesson to take away. I think the last thing I wanted to talk about, and then I'll open up to questions, is this. Today's random medical news. Uh, if you read popular newspapers, it may feel as if this is how they write the news. They have three wheels and they have a spinner on it. First wheel they spin. What's today's news? Hmm, smoking. Second wheel they spin. Can cause glaucoma in spin the wheel. Children. Ah, boom, ready to go, you got our story. It feels as if this is how they write the news. Chocolate can cause Depression in people under the age of 12. Uh, you know, whatever you want. You know, it's, it feels like they're just picking the news and then the next day it's the opposite. Why does it feel this way? I'll give you one example. Vitamin E can increase your risk of death. So I go to the cupboard and I throw, them all, I throw out all those bottles. And I, you know, I can imagine I have many bottles. Um, oh my gosh. Vitamin E mortality study has been challenged. It actually helps you. I'm back in Costco buying another bottle. Um, and they, you know, they sell those very big bottles there. Uh, I will say there are a few topics that the news coverage, you may as well just throw it in the trash. For, I'll tell you what they are. Chocolate, tea, coffee, alcohol, um, berries, any berry. Any berry is gonna do well in the news and any pitted fruit is gonna get destroyed. Uh, peaches, plums, you have no shot. You know, I can't remember the last time I read a study that said a plum is good for you or pee. Um, this doesn't reflect, I don't think, anything true about science, but rather these are topics that for whatever reason, we all like to read or click on. Um, 
I find it, I mean, I really don't know the reason that we all are just, we love red wine stories, we love dark chocolate stories, we love berries. Um, and that's why they're gonna keep giving us those stories. So I guess I wanted to explain a little bit about why they can say anything. This is a little technical, so I'll try to explain, I think, as best I can. Um, how do they do these studies? That's what I want to ask you. How do they do these studies? How do we know if drinking coffee is linked to prostate cancer? How do we know that? Well, it turns out that we've administered a questionnaire to many, many people over many years, and we've asked them to log what are all the things you ate or drank. And so we've administered to tens of thousands of people a questionnaire where it says, I had two tomatoes, one cup of coffee, one egg sunny side up, blah, 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 you know, and we got all this data. And then we follow these people out 10 years later and we know, are they alive and well, what diseases they have, et cetera, et cetera. And we have this data set of what they ate many years ago and what happened to them. And this data set is broadly available, lots of people have it. And there are lots of clever people out there who can open it up on their computer and these days with a few keystrokes kind of ask this question, does taking vitamin E, is it better or worse for me? Okay, so you can imagine a data set with all this information and many, 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 many people out there who can ask the question, fire away. The next thing you have to know is that we have to adjust for some variables. For instance, if you want to know if vitamin E is linked to living or dying mortality, what are some of the things you might adjust for? You might say, well, we have to adjust for age because let's be honest, younger people may not be taking as much vitamin E as older people. So if you don't correct for that fact, vitamin E could look like a poison, but it's only because the people who are taking it happen to be older. That's why they're doing, you know, it's not that the vitamin E is bad, it's that the older people are the ones taking it. And that's why the people who take vitamin E aren't doing as badly. Um, so you adjust for age. What about sex? What about race? You can adjust for all these things. And a researcher in Portland may run this kind of study. A researcher in Toronto may add income because they, they care a lot in Canada about socioeconomics. A researcher in North Carolina may add smoking because they see a lot more smoking than we do, unfortunately, and so they may think about that more than, than we do. A researcher at Harvard may add a whole bunch of things because they're smarty pants. Uh, <laughs> but all of a sudden you can start to ask, why do you adjust for some things and not other things? Doesn't it make sense to adjust for cholesterol or alcohol or hypertension or um, how many tomatoes you had or heart disease or race or cancer? Who decides what to adjust for or not? And the answer is, there is no rule. Whatever a researcher thinks is plausible and can tell a good story for, why it should have been adjusted for, that's what they adjust for. Okay, so now imagine the situation. This data set, many, many people have it. Many, many people are asking the question, Different people are adjusting for different things because we all have different ideas of what would affect the outcome. Who is going to write up what they find? Just the successful ones, yes. No, he's right. Who is going to write up what they find? The people who find things that are interesting, like this is bad or this is good. All the people who find things that is boring, like it doesn't matter one way or the other. Are they gonna write it up? I, you know, I've already alluded to how the journal doesn't like to print those articles because they're so boring. We don't like to read it. Can you imagine New York Times headline? Coffee might do something or might not do anything at all. <laughs> no, no one's gonna click on that. And in fact, that's what the researchers did. They simulated millions of research projects on the same question, vitamin D and living or dying adjusting for every possible combination of 13 commonly adjusted for things. And they create these clouds. These are heat density maps. And there's a hot part of the map and a cool part of the map. 
And what they're showing you in this heat density map is that most of the analyses show that this nutrient has nothing to do with living or dying, but some analyses show that it's helping you or hurting you. You can get either way. And if you factor in, as this gentleman pointed out, our, the, the fact that human beings are more likely to write up the sensational findings, the net result of the whole system is the newspaper will only cover one dot up here, and then one dot down here, and then one dot up here, and we will always have these back and forth news stories. Because somebody by chance alone is going to get something good, and they're going to write it up. So the problem, I think, and, and, and that's why it happens more for the hot topics, like dark chocolate. Because probably more people are asking about that than they're asking about I don't know, what's something boring? Granola, or I don't know. No, but you probably read about granola, too. something that's like mashed potatoes. Um, okay, so what I want to show you there is, on these certain hot topics, I, I mean, I guess people ask me, like, well, what's your advice on diet? And I think, you know, I don't have a magic answer. I, I tend to be drawn to the view of Michael Pollan, who wrote a nice book called In Defense of Food, where he says, like, let's just make this simple. Don't eat things with tons of processed ingredients that don't decompose. If you can leave a Twinkie on the counter for 20 years and it doesn't rot, if nothing will rot the food, then it's probably not worth putting in your body. Uh, you know, things like that. I mean, he just has these very basic rules, and I think that's probably as sensible as we'll ever get. Um, and all this kind of trying to find some magic berry or something is probably misguided. Okay, I'm going to take questions. The last thing I'll just say is that if you look at how evidence is constructed in science and you look at how media covers it, there are some problematic things. Sometimes the media covers a story in a way that doesn't capture the complexity of the topic. They oversimplify. They maybe even have a misleading message. That bothers me a little bit. But what bothers me a bigger degree that people don't talk about is the choice of what they cover. And we did a study a few years ago where we show they preferentially cover those flimsy sorts of studies with smaller sample size and observational methodology than more rigorous types of studies. And they do that because the topics are something that, the, that people, I think, have broader interest. But they really do us a disservice because they're covering lower levels of evidence. They're amplifying something that's more uncertain than what might be more certain. Okay. I guess I will just kind of close with one last thought because I spend a little more time talking about it, trying to explain things. But um, I guess what I, what I think about medicine is that um, we are a field that has stutters and stops. And we have more blind alleys and false leads than other fields, in part because human biology is very, very complex. And part of that complexity is part of why we are so interesting, I think, as a species and why this is such an interesting job, is that it's complex. And it is so easy to believe that what you're doing is of value to patients. Um, of course, it's nice to believe that. You get a lot of positive reinforcement from believing that. And we happen to live in an environment where you can become very rich and successful believing that. It's a lot harder to actually say, even though I believe in this a great deal, I need to study this rigorously as a scientist would and prove that it's not just my gut feeling, but there's something true about this that actually works. I think we have a regulatory system that has moved us in the other direction over time, we alluded to, that the standard to bring a drug or device to the US market is lower and lower. There's a consistent narrative that anytime anyone asks for evidence before you approve a drug, they're trying to hold back progress or keep something life-saving from you. I think that narrative is overblown, and I think the people who are really promulgating that narrative often are the industry who have a secret commercial interest in that 
because the easiest way to make money is have the very lowest standard for drug approval and let marketing drive decisions like this. I think the challenge is being able to say, there are some things we do that are life-saving, but there's much of what we do that's uncertain and some of what we do that probably doesn't help. And in, and in those cases, the best we can do now is two things. One, we have to be very honest with patients who go to the doctor and let them know all that uncertainty. You can't just tell somebody to do something when there's so much uncertainty there. You have to share that uncertainty and try to get a sense of what their preferences and values are and what they would like to do. The next thing we do we have to do as a profession is we have to commit ourselves to answering these questions in a reasonable timetable. Uh, I point out that we spend a trillion dollars on healthcare in this country. We spend less than 30 billion, much less than 30 billion, testing the unproven healthcare. The ratio of how much we spend on unproven things and how much we test that is a ridiculous ratio. If we were a company, we would have retooled the entire apparatus because you know you're, you could be hemorrhaging hundreds of millions of hundreds of billions of dollars a year on practices that don't work that make people worse off that are little more than a jobs program for physicians and other people who make money from them. Um, that it's very possible that 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 a lot of healthcare is that, and we have to invest as a society in running those studies. Those studies will never be run by the makers of those products. They have to be run by governmental agencies and they have to use taxpayer money because companies will run studies that favor their products and you can't blame a lion for being a lion. Uh, so I think the purpose of the regulatory state is to take the, the desire and harness the energy of for-profit companies and bend that towards what's in patients' best interest. That's why we have regulation. But regulation is captured by people who want to bend it towards the profit. And the people who want to bend it towards the profit, they know more about the field. They know more about the rules. They have more time and more investment in making it the other way. You know, there's another saying that a large and mostly disinterested majority will always lose to a small vocal minority. And the industry is a small vocal minority and they're defeating us because we're mostly a large disinterested majority um, and so they can easily kind of manipulate these rules. And uh, uh, I'm happy to talk more about, you know, some of my thoughts and the questions. So thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>